In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Not long ago, at a Catholic worker infant house, a shelter for battered and abused children, a small boy was about to be placed in a new foster home. The woman who was running the house was walking him out to the car where his new foster family was waiting for him. And as they walked to the car, the little boy, all of five years old, said to her, Will you carry me? The woman reached down to reassure him, reminding him that he was a little too old to be carried at this point. But the boy responded by saying, I mean, in your heart. The woman was surprised to see that such a small child would speak so figuratively. But she told him, of course she would. As they walked a little closer to the car, the little boy turned and said to her, will you remember to kiss me goodnight? This time, the woman realized, of course, that he was not speaking literally. She said, of course I will. I will remember you every night. I will carry you in my heart. That true and, of course, very poignant story I think illustrates for us something of what is being asked of us in this very pregnant time of Advent. So much is being asked of those who have ears to hear. There is a sense in which you and I are being asked to carry the embryonic Christ in our hearts. We are asked to prepare a room for him there so that he will not always be consigned to a stable. So in our gospel story that Bill has read for us this morning, both Mary and her cousin Elizabeth are confident that Mary is pregnant with the Christ child. Joseph may still be a little bit unsure, but these two women are positive that God is at work in and among them. And not only is Elizabeth sure, but the baby in her womb, the one we call John the Baptist, who we have heard about the last couple of weeks, uh, also gives a kick or rolls over to indicate that he also is aware of this truth. As you recall, Mary's first response to Gabriel's good news is actually one of fear. And why not? After all, Gabriel says, don't be afraid. He doesn't say there's nothing out there to be afraid of. The Episcopal writer Barbara Brown Taylor says that if she had been in Mary's shoes, she would have been terrified. And she would have asked a lot of questions that Mary doesn't. Questions like, will Joseph stick around when all of this happens? And will my mother and father continue to love and support me? Will the people of Nazareth run me out of town when I begin to show? After all, adultery is not thought of very highly in my time and place, and especially not when it comes to women. If this does go full term, who will be there to help me with the delivery? Will it hurt? Will I even survive? So many of my peers have not. All kinds of thoughts that must have flooded her mind. 
But in the end, she overcame that fear. She gave a clear response. Here am I, the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And in that interchange, I think Luke highlights for us one of the deepest truths of this season. You have heard me say before, um, Augustine's famous words, without God, we humans cannot. But without us, God will not. Because God is love. And because love is never coercive. God never forces us, but rather always invites us, invites you and me into this amazing collaborative dance of life and ministry. It always takes two to tango. Lewis Everly uh, puts this event into words that any good Presbyterian parliamentarian can understand. He says that the angel Gabriel made a motion that day and that Mary seconded the motion. In other words, Mary could have said no and the motion might have died for a second. Or the motion would have died from her point of view, but the movement would have gone on without her. And you do have to wonder how many of God's motions have died for a lack of a second, or how often you and I have missed the chance to second the motion and the movement has gone on, but without us. You know, there is a world of difference between being a spectator in the stands and on the other hand, being called out of the stands and becoming a player on the field. I remember the old black preacher who used to say, the trouble with most Christians is that they pray, oh Lord, use me, use me, but if possible, in an advisory capacity. You've heard, I assume, that you should be careful about what you pray for, um, in part because you, you might actually get it, but also because God might ask you to also be part of the answer, which is precisely what happened to Anthony DeMello. He was walking down the streets of Calcutta in the middle of the winter, so it was deathly cold, when he noticed a poor little girl from one of the nearby tenements. She was underdressed and from all appearances also poorly fed. And the sight of her under those circumstances invoked real indignation in him. He found himself looking up to the sky and saying, God, why don't you do something uh, for all of your creatures who are suffering? And he was startled when in his heart he heard a voice respond, well, Anthony, I have done something. I created you. And suddenly he realized that he was to be more than a spectator. He was to be part of the solution. It could be that that's precisely what happened to Mary. She must have been amazed, don't you think, that God would choose her to shine his favor on? I mean, 2,000 years later, we have such a high, lofty ideal about Mary, we imagine that there must have been something remarkable about her, something that caused God to choose her. But the scriptures don't indicate that at all. In fact, that's the point consistent with what Luke tells us again and again. 
it's not because she was so pious or holy. It's not like she had been rehearsing this role like some actress getting ready for a Christmas pageant. In fact, it's not even indicated that she was expecting visitors. She may have had her hair up in curlers and an apron around her waist when Gabriel arrived. It's a theme that Luke will repeat again and again in his telling of the good news, that the common is touched by the holy unexpectedly. And in that meeting, the least likely become the most likely. The least favored become the most. Indeed, each and every time one of us finds, or more often is found by God, there is something miraculous about it. It's not always logical or rational, but there is a sense of being sort of tapped on the shoulder by God. I heard someone say once, we can easily explain evil acts by looking at the history of the perpetrator. But when someone does something, something remarkably generous or courageous, persons like a Mother Teresa or an Archbishop Tutu, they are usually the first to ascribe their reasons to God. Bill Beekner puts it this way. He says, evil evolves. Only holiness happens. So Mary and Elizabeth, it seems to me, are a wonderful example of how God acts in history and the kind of faith necessary today to, to carry the Christ child into the world. Mary hears God's motion and she is initially terrified, so she goes to seek out Elizabeth, the family, the friend who understands what is happening to her. And Elizabeth, in a beautiful image, again, I think of what we in the church are called to do for each other, Elizabeth affirms her faith. She rejoices with her in her great, though terrifying, calling. And as is so often the case, when our friends give us affirmation, we are empowered. And that's what happens to Mary. So Mary summons words from her recollection of the Hebrew scriptures. She spills forth her joy and her perception of what is happening in these wonderful words of the Magnificat. She reaches way back into her Jewish tradition and she echoes the words of another mother, Hannah, at the birth of her son, the prophet Emmanuel. And these lovely, terrible words speak to us of revolution. Her words are a comfort to the oppressed, but they are also frightening words for the rich, and the powerful. She says of God, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones. He has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty-handed. This is not socialism. This is not communism. This is the gospel. 
These are not the words of a bedtime lullaby. Don't trivialize Mary. You know, so often we think of Mary as the gentle, obedient bride-to-be, warmly dressed in her white and blue. Or we think of her as the vulnerable, unwed teenager. But the Mary of the Magnificat is a very different woman. Every bit as powerful and as passionate, as prophetic as was her nephew, John the Baptist. And her words also speak to us of the implications of carrying the Christ child into our world in our time. We are all meant to be mothers of God, wrote Meister Eckhart, the medieval mystic. What good is it to me, he asks, if the eternal birth of the divine son takes place unceasingly but it does not take place within myself. And what good is it to me if Mary is full of grace, if I am not also full of grace? What good is it for me, for the creator to give birth to his son, if I do not also give birth to him in my time and in my culture? And so Mary is also a reminder to us of the cost of carrying the Christ child in the world today? Do we need to be reminded, perhaps, that motherhood was not all sweetness and light for Mary? Just a short time after the birth, she and Joseph take the baby to the temple um, to be dedicated, and there they meet old Simeon. Simeon takes the baby in his arms, and he says, this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many. And a sword, Mary, a sword will pierce your heart also. The gospel writer Matthew tells us that not long after the birth, Herod the king was so jealous that he ordered the execution of all of the children two years and under in and around Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph had to flee to Egypt. Jesus becomes a political refugee, seeking asylum. There is no room in the inn or in his homeland. The story of Jesus' birth to a poor, unwed mother in an out-of-the-way third-world town, visited by poor, working-class shepherds, is just the first of many installments in which the scriptures remind us that while God loves all, God has a special place in his heart for the poor and the oppressed, for those who are being left out and those who are being left behind. Blessed are the poor, Jesus says in his Sermon on the Plain. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. You shall see me in the least of these, he says in his parable of the last judgment. God sent Jesus not only to love the world, but to turn it upside down. So we need to understand that when we find ourselves living in the wealthiest and most powerful nation in the world, 
living in an upwardly mobile society with more opportunities and resources than most in the world, there will be times when carrying Jesus in our hearts should challenge our assumptions, should challenge the status quo with which we are more than comfortable. And we need to expect that when we carry Jesus in the world, there will not always be room for us either. I think of the young law student about to graduate from Duke Law School who went back to her hometown for an interview with one of the most successful law firms in that town. They had actually recruited her. And the interview went very well right up until the end when one of the interviewers mentioned one of the companies that they represented. And the young woman said, wait, isn't that the group behind the biggest gambling casino in the city? The interviewer responded, yes, but of course we don't pretend to make moral judgments in terms of who we serve. Besides, they're our biggest client. And the young woman said, though I am not sure that I could represent someone who has taken advantage of so many as they have. And it may not surprise you that she didn't get a call back. Or I think of the clergy group in one town, again, a true story, who were asked by a group of merchants to set up an appropriate display at the local mall. And so a committee was formed, always a committee. And one of the most creative people on the committee suggested for the theme, the much beloved Christmas carol, Christ was born for this. So they set up a PowerPoint, and on the screen were lovely pictures of the Christmas season. There were families gathered around the tree, but also families gathered at the border seeking asylum. There were pictures of beautiful houses with lights and carolers outside. There were also pictures of people waiting in food lines and people waiting to vote in poor neighborhoods. And underneath it all, it was continually played, Christ was born for this. Christ was born for this. Just a few days after the display went up, one of the ministers got a call from the person who administered the church mall and um, asked that the, the display be taken down. People just don't want to come Christmas shopping and see scenes of poverty and things like that. It's just not appropriate for Christmas. And you can understand the manager's point, right? Because the Jesus that the world wants is not always the Jesus that the world gets or needs. So on this last Sunday of Advent, Jesus is once more coming into the world. But he does not come into a hallmark card world of gentle beasts and hovering angels. He comes into a real world as divided and as unjust as the one in which he originally entered. He seeks to enter a world where there is still no room for him, which seeks to crowd him out with our cynicism and our busyness 
and our misunderstanding of the real bottom line. And we should be prepared for such a response. But he will come, reminding us again that God's ways are not always our ways, nor his thoughts our own. He will come because there are still some people courageous enough to help him enter into his world. That very first advent began in a Galilean springtime when God asked a young woman if she would literally carry the Christ child into the world. But every advent you and I are asked again, will you carry me? In your heart, will you carry me? Will you kiss me goodnight? Amen.